Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? You're in luck because we just upgraded our job board and we're here to help you out. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs where you can browse job listings, post your own jobs, and sign up for email updates when new job listings are posted. This week on the job board, Coforma is looking for a senior software engineer. This is a remote position. American Express is looking for a product manager in the United States. And Work & Co. is looking for a lead recruiter in Los Angeles, California. Posting to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs starts at just $99, way less than many other design job boards. And for an additional fee, you can have your listing advertised here on the podcast and reach tens of thousands of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. And while you're there, click on the talent tab at the top of the page and check out our new initiative for companies and job seekers, the 10th Collective. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. First off, I just have to say thank you so, so much to all of you who applied to the 10th Collective. You know, I mentioned it on last week's show. We've been talking about it on social media. Also, State of Black Design has been talking about it. I've been reaching out to my personal networks and stuff. Really, really so glad that people are excited about this. Can't wait to really kick it off and start pairing people up with companies. In case you haven't heard, the 10th Collective is a joint effort from Revision Path and State of Black Design to connect black professionals in the design and creative industries with companies committed to hiring black candidates for design and creative positions. So if you're a black designer out there looking for work and you want to be a part of the 10th Collective, you can apply to be a member. Just head over to the10thcollective.com or you can go to our job board, revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You can go there. You can click the talent link at the top of the page. That will also take you there. You know, if you're looking for work, it's 100% free to apply. It's 100% free to be a part of the collective. And you'll only get connected with companies interested in talking to you. No spam, no unwanted messages, all warm intros. Trust me, you're going to love it. The10thcollective.com. Again, thanks so much. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Hover. You know, building your online brand has never been more important. And that begins with your domain name. You know, an interesting thing that I've noticed from people that are applying to the collective is that a lot of them are not really using their own websites. They might be using Behance. They might be pointing people to a social media page, which I think is fine. But like if you're a designer, especially if you've been working in the design industry for a number of years and you've got a number of different projects and things that you've done under your belt, you really need to have your own website. And the thing that sets it off is having your own domain name like that really brands you as like, I am a working designer. Well, not so much that you're a working designer, but you're definitely a working designer that takes your public brand and public image super seriously. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. 
With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. So what are you waiting for? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Trevor Wagner, an Austin, Texas-based service designer and product designer. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, my name is Trevor Wagner. My pronouns are he, him, and I am a system designer by day and then a seeker, traveler by the rest of my life. (laughs) How has uh, 2022 been going for you so far? I would say it's been going pretty well. I moved back to Austin to kind of start going after my dreams. It's been going well so far. Well, it's been kind of going well so far. <laughs> I just adopted a dog, and so it's a little bit of a herring experience. So, well, nice. Yeah. What kind of dog? So he's a mutt, but we just got back his DNA results, and he's German Shepherd, Australian Cattle Dog, Shih Tzu, and a small Poodle mix. <laughs> That is quite a mix. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of energy. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Aside from the new dog, do you have any kind of like plans for the summer? I saw on Twitter, you mentioned that you're touring U.S. national parks. Is that still going on? No, actually, I did that last year. So that kind of ties into what I'm back in Austin for. But last year, I did a seven month road trip around the West and where I was seeing national parks as well as seeing friends who I hadn't seen in years because of the pandemic. And then also kind of looking, keeping an eye out for like land to buy or a house to buy or whatnot, because Texas prices have gone up so wildly. So it's been kind of difficult to find places to live. So, but I moved back to Austin to kind of um, reassess, save money, just prepare for the next five years of my life. But as far as this summer, um, No big plans. I think it's just beat out the heat here in Texas, train my dog, take care of my dog, and hang out with my friends who live here while I can. Nice. Now, you were there for South By this year. This was sort of the first year back, I think, after two years, roughly, of of, um, sort of remote South By Southwest. Did you notice like a big change in the city with South By coming back? Typically, like before or BC, before COVID, South By would shut down the whole city and all the local residents would like leave or just stay in the house until South By went away. But this year is very quiet. It was a slow ease back into city shutdown that it usually is. So, I mean, typically when South By is going on, you can't go downtown, can't find a parking space to save your life. But I went down to downtown once or twice and it was pretty, it was like any other day, to be honest. Like like, no streets were shut down as far as I saw. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't really participate in South By, but just because... I didn't want to deal with crowds and, yeah. and COVID and, and things like that. And you live there. So like, what's the draw? Mm-hmm. Exactly. But the thing about South by, which a lot of people don't really realize is that you have South by film, music, and all the other treks associated with South by, but there's also a lot of free shows or oh, peripheral yeah. shows that are happening that you can go to parties and things like that. Restaurants and local vendors are doing cool things for all the traffic, all the South by 
people coming into town. So, yeah, I mean, that stuff is fun. But like I said, dealing with traffic and parking, you know, all that stuff kind of is a, a drain. Yeah. Sometimes. So currently I see you're working as a senior product designer at Redfin. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Like what drew you to the company? Actually, I didn't <laughs> I didn't see it for Redfin initially. So I was the former head of, of design, Colin Gregson, reached out to me on LinkedIn and he was like, you know, we're trying to start up the design system at Redfin and we need someone like you. I guess he had heard about what I did uh, did with Indeed, and he wanted to kind of do the do the same with Redfin. But at the time, I wasn't really looking for a job. I wasn't working at the time. I was actually taking a break. I was on a another sabbatical. I had just left a company that where I had experienced racial discrimination and was taking some time to heal from all of that. And I let him know I was like, "Hey, I'm not feeling it right now." <laughs> Mm-hmm. I'm not feeling it right now. I'm healing from that. I'm dealing with COVID. I mean, I didn't catch COVID, but the pandemic was fresh and new. This was like March 2020. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I was like, uh-uh, I'm not. <laughs> it was at a time where I was once again wondering if I wanted to stick with the tech, the tech industry mm-hmm. or just, I don't know do something else but i'm a completist and i decided obviously i decided to stick with it and he kept reaching out a couple of times to see how i was doing or where i was at i think that the next time that he reached out was around like june 2020 and of course around that time it was not a good time at all because of protest and you know police murders and things like that yeah so which again just kind of reopened my the bullshit that i had experienced and I was just very just frustrated and angry and uh, jaded and bitter and old. <laughs> but I just, I think it was around December is when I told him, I was like, hey, I feel that I can jump back in and actually provide or do what I'm, I'm here to do when it comes to systems design and um, really help you out. So we began interviewing and all that stuff. And it was probably the best interviewing experience that I've ever had, hands down. They really made me feel comfortable. And they typically, or in the past, what I've experienced with interviewing as a Black person is that people don't really see it for you or they don't think that you actually have the expertise that you do have. Mm -hmm. And with Redfin, I just felt like they allowed me to present my work and things that, you know, the stuff that I consider to be my craft, the things that I study, things that I love to do, which is signing a system. And they heard me out and they loved it. And they were like, yeah, you're the one. So and then they offered me a, a deal. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> the, the story of trauma doesn't stop there. In Texas, we had the winter storm. Yeah. Maybe like a week before I was supposed to start, which was like... Oh, with February. the power grid and all that stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. It was very bad. I was one of the unlucky few who did not have power or running water, water the whole time. Oh, no. Um, we're talking like single digit. Yeah. It was traumatizing. I The whole time I was thinking, am I going to survive? I'm checking in with friends and they're telling me that 
I'm not going to say it here, but it's pretty traumatic stuff yeah. that they experience. Uh, we're talking like death and things like that. Yeah. And I, like a crazy person who has experienced a lot of trauma in his life, I was like, you know what? Sure, I can start a job following all of that. Mm. <laughs> so I started the next week and I did it with a smile on my face, but definitely it was a, wear, a mental wear down for me eventually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, I think we're going to look back in the history books and just see how much repeated trauma and shit black people had to put up with that summer of 2020. Because I got laid off right around that time, like in May, like around Memorial Day. And I remember I was like, I didn't really feel like going back and trying to jump into finding another job. I had just been at this place for two and a half years and I sort of wanted to take a break. But I felt extremely guilty about taking a break at a time when people were out protesting in the streets for such a worthy cause. And I'm like, I really need this rest, though. Like, I don't know what I'm going to have another time in my professional career to actually be okay with staying still for a few months because we got, you know, severance and all that sort of stuff. And what ended up happening and a lot of, I think a lot of black folks, again, during this time will mention this, is that now you have this influx of companies that are not only pledging to do better in the face of all of this, but now all of a sudden I got work. I'm getting bombarded with offers and things to do and talking to companies internally about ways that they can change their DEI and all this sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. And, but then also being said, you know, this is such a, a watershed moment. And, and do you think that this will continue? And I'm like, no, but also it's not really up to me to do that because you as the white people in power, like it's on y'all to continue this. It's not on us. It's not on the, the aggrieved to try to fix this on y'all right and of course now two years later pretty much all of those promises have gone up in smoke so yeah i think you know i would say like with redfin you asked me about redfin i i would say that that i've really seen them try I'm not trying to be the uh spokesperson for redfin because I, I don't think i i could do a good job at it but mm-hmm I'm really impressed with how they've been kind of like leaders in the real estate real estate industry of trying to do the right thing for not only black people, but marginalized individuals. They've removed crime stats because they found our researchers are amazing. They've removed crime stats from house listings or property listings because they found that the areas that see a lot of quote unquote crime are over-policed and are predominantly black or brown. It's kind of skewed data that they're getting. So it's like, why have that on there? It's not clean data. It's not representative of the actual neighborhood. So let's remove that. And I think they've kind of put the pressure on other real estate companies to do the same hmm. as well. So that really impressed me. Not only have you you know, cleaned up house, clean up your own house, but you're also encouraging other people to clean up their houses too. I thought that was yeah. really great. And I should mention, this whole conversation is not to bash your employer. So I, don't, I hope I don't want them to think yeah. that like we're going in on, on Redfin or anything. But Oh, um, no. No. But I think it's it's just worth mentioning that like during that time in particular, there were so many friends of mine I know that were like finally getting more speaking gigs, getting more design gigs, more companies were hitting them up. They were getting more job offers. 
And it's kind of bittersweet because it's like, well, yeah, it's great that you see what I'm able to offer, but this is what it had to take for that to happen. And for it to not even be a sustained thing, it's just sort of like this one spike. And then that's that. It's crazy. Yeah, it's interesting because it's like, finally, for me, someone who's been in the industry for almost 15 plus years, who has been around a lot of designers who, you know, get awards and things like that or whatever, or just get a lot of recognition. It felt good to finally be recognized in some way, but it was also bittersweet because it's like, I've been here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I've been doing the dang thing. I've been doing a great job at it. And you're not really, in a sense, it's like you're not really recognizing me, the work. You're recognizing me, the black designer. It's like, you know, I'm more than that. I do more than that. Yeah. Or if anything, they're kind of trying to, you know, maybe wallpaper over some corporate guilt. Yeah, exactly. Well, not to dwell too much on on work (laughs) or anything, but I'm curious, like, what's a typical day like for you at Redfin? Like, what's your day to day look like? So my title is product designer, but we don't um, our design system team is very small. It's just mainly me and my co-lead who is a designer as well. So we don't have like a we don't have like a direct manager. We don't have a product manager in our quote unquote pod we work with an engineering team, but they're a separate team. They're not actually a part of our team, but we work very close together all the time. So my day-to-day is looking at roadmaps and kind of filling in for the product manager role. It's also doing some design tasks as well. So um, designing components, researching systems, checking in with my co-lead to make sure that we're like on track to meet our goals for like our MVP of the design system and things like that. Sometimes we get questions from our design system customers, which are designers and engineers from the company. You know, if I know the answer, <laughs> which most of the time I don't, I'll chime in and, and kind of help out wherever I can. So doing support, thinking about educating how we're going to educate our customers about the new system that we're working on checking in with our stakeholders as we're building the design system to make sure that we're in alignment and we're, you know, doing fulfilling business needs as well as our customer needs. And then also making sure like our partners we work with to build the system are happy and aligned with us as well. It's a lot of engagement. It's a lot of communication, which for me as an introvert can be a little draining sometimes, but, I would say that I have a pretty good health self-care regimen. I could do better, but I try. I try my best. <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, I think, you know, especially throughout the pandemic, we're all just, we're trying to hold on, especially with all these other things that are happening out in the world that are not pandemic related, that are still compounding stress. You know, I don't want to specifically give name to any tragedies, but for folks that are listening, they know what's going on right now yeah. in this time in the world. Like, it's a lot of it's heavy. It's heavy. It's like a landmine. Like just you're just walking through this really beautiful field and you come across landmines here and there. Like you mentioned, not to name any tragedies that have happened, but there's so many. So take your pick. But each one of those kind of Ooh. it affects me. Yeah. It affects yeah. me in some way. I'm an empath, so I see people hurting and I want to do something. I want to take the the hurt away, but I can't do anything about it. I feel like 
closest I can get is like donating money. But I just feel even that feels like it's not enough. So let's switch gears here and learn more about you and your origin story. Like you mentioned you're in Austin, Texas right now. Is that where you grew up? I did not grow up in Austin. Austin was always this cool city, but I grew up in or near Waco, Texas, which if you're not familiar with Waco for some reason, it is in the center of Texas, uh, Mm -hmm. central Texas. I grew up in a very small town, maybe 15, 20 minutes north of Waco, a very small town. We're talking like less than 900 people. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm from the country. Like right now, you're probably not hearing my Texas accent, but it's deep in there somewhere. At a certain point, my mother, who at the time was a microbiologist, couldn't find a job in the Waco area. She was also involved with the military. So we had our house in in near Waco, but we also lived up in Arlington, Texas, which is in DFW. So we had like a dual residence type situation where we would live in Arlington throughout the week and then go down to the country on the weekends. Um, So I had like a city life and a country life at the same time, which I think hopping up and down I-35, sitting in a car for an hour and a half each way kind of yielded into me being a traveler when I got older and just wanting to explore more, more of the world, more of our country. So yeah, when I was at the age where I needed to start going to school, I started going to private school, Christian private school in mm-hmm. Arlington. It was non-denominational. So there were all walks of life were there, Catholic, Baptist, Christian, Asian, Black, White, Latino, etc. The neighborhood that we eventually settled in in Arlington was predominantly Hispanic, or at least it became predominantly Hispanic. And my babysitter, who I went to get hang out with after school, was Hispanic. She was from South Texas, and she taught me Spanish. So I was exposed to a lot of culture. Uh, mm-hmm. at a young age, but I was also from a, a small town. So I faced a lot of small town mindset, which is not, you know, b- not being exposed to a lot of different cultures. Yeah. So I was always met up with encountering people who did not realize that there's a world outside of the small town, outside mm-hmm. of where, <laughs> where Walmart Supercenter was the biggest thing, you know, the, mm-hmm. the happy place. Yeah. So yeah. It was fun. It was interesting, but it eventually had to get out of there because, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm a queer person and it's a small Texas town. So you can gather what that means so, <laughs> <laughs> for me, but I had to go find myself. I had to, I had to get, I had to see what kind of life I could lead being a black queer person. And that's where I ended up in Denton, Texas, going to UNT or University of North Texas. So before that, though, you started off at a at a community college at McLennan. Was that in Waco or nearby Waco? It was in Waco. So I went at the same time. So I've always been kind of an overachiever. I think it's because of the private school education that I had. But while I was a, I think, junior and senior at West High, which is in West Comma, Texas, we say West Comma, Texas, because (laughs) <laughs> when we say West Texas, people think Western Texas, and it's, oh. it's a town called West. You may have heard of it. There was, <laughs> speaking of tragedy, <laughs> there was a 
fertilizer explosion that kind of almost demolished the whole town. Oh, wow. uh, it was around the time the Boston shooting happened in like 2013, 14. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I went to I went to high school there. But at the same time, I did like dual credit, which is when you take government and economics and, and some other courses, you also get college credit for them. So the, the local community college that was doing that was McLennan Community College. So I didn't actually like do full like fall, spring semesters. I did like summer school, summer classes. And then I eventually went to, I transferred those credits to UNT. So I consider like University of North Texas my like full on college experience in mm. McLennan or MCC was like my kind of interim exposure to college. Was that a big shift going from like a community college to a four year? Yes. It was more of a big shift because big shift because I had it was less of a big shift going from community college to a full on university and more of a big shift going from like <laughs> going from like being very sheltered to just all of a sudden having no no rules, no one to watch over me or keep me out of trouble or whatever. Uh, no one to <laughs> keep me from figuring out what queerness is or my identity is. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Um, it was a unique experience, I would say. Like, I, it wasn't something that I wasn't used to because I, I would say, like, going from private school, a private education to a public education was far more of a big shift. I mean, that happened when I was like in like sixth grade, where all of a sudden you're enforced to be very prim and proper, no cursing, to being in an environment where people are fighting or kids are fighting all over the place, cursing, having sex. <laughs> so like, what did I get myself into? <laughs> it was a totally different uh, world, it sounds like. It was a totally different world. I, I felt like I was, no offense to any to, to Mormons, but I felt like I was a Mormon kid coming, actually <laughs> going into the real world. I it was your rumspringer. Yes, but at like <laughs> 12, 13. Looking back, it's funny and hilarious, but at the time it was very kind of like scary. So I would say when I transitioned from graduating from high school and attending some some community college courses or doing some community college courses to full on, you know, living in a dorm, being on a college campus, meeting people from different parts of the world. I would say that was very exciting for me. Mm. I just felt very free. I hear that you were dubbed the guru while you were there. Yeah, that was a nickname that my manager at the time gave me. (laughs) It's funny. I started as a web designer. So I was designing blogs when I was in high school and online blogs was like my saving grace as a black queer person. Um, I didn't have any friends really in high school, so I would just write online and that was like my escape. So in escaping to blog, writing blogs, I started designing them and kind of created a a service out of that for other bloggers. So I would create their templates, their blog templates. I learned CSS from doing that and I think a little bit of HTML at the same time. And also got to flex my creative muscle as well and creating like color schemes and finding this like rinky dink image creation software, editing software and 
creating like mastheads for blogs and stuff like that. But that led me into wanting to do that as for actually getting paid to do it. And so in within like a couple of months of being on campus in my freshman year, I found a job flyer for a web designer for uh, the rec center on campus. And I kind of just, I uh, begged my way into that job. Um, <laughs> they gave me the job. And after about a year or so of doing that, the head of IT for like the division that the rec center department was under saw my work and he was like, Hey, would you like to do this for the whole division? And I was like, what does that entail? He was like, that's like, you get to be the webmaster <laughs> web designer for mm-hmm. like 30 to 40 websites. And I was like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> he was grateful for it because it's cheap labor. But, you know, I think that was the first time that I learned how to be, not learned how to be, but I think that's where I adopted my skill as in what I call an octopus. You know, like I mentioned, it's like I had to maintain, design, develop 30 40 sites and they all kind of look the same, but they ha- all had to look the same because they reflected the, de- the division, not so much their department. So I guess in a, in a sense, it was my first time working with multi-brand design systems, which is crazy because like I didn't really make that connection until just now. Like, oh, I've always been working on multi-brand design systems. But because I understood system thinking, even at that age, which was around, I think it was 2022, he called me guru. Mm. So I understood like a process was important. It was almost necessary to maintain that many properties all, all at once. You know, you have to have some semblance of organization. So he just saw my approach and the fact that I plastered like this cubby hole wall that I had, like he, <laughs> I was working from the storage room because mm-hmm. we didn't have like an office or a desk for me to work in. And so while I was in the storage room, I would just like plaster all the walls with like uh, site maps and diagrams and whatever, just to keep myself organized with all these many different properties that I was maintaining. So so what was that early like post-graduation career like? It was because I had already had like a lot of experience under my belt already, having been paid to do web design, I was able to get like a... Salary-wise, I was able to get like a high wage for my first job out of college. It was hard because it was at the time where we were having the recession in 2010. So it was very hard to find a job. But once I got a job, I was able to get a a high salary. And high salary at the time for me for, I guess, relatively kind of new designer was 45K in Dallas. So Dallas area. Yeah, I felt like I I was going from ravioli eating every night to having like a luxury apartment overnight. It felt like it was interesting. It was a little bit of adjustment and I don't think I quite found the balance. Eventually, I was let go from that job. And I think that was pretty devastating to experience that. But You know, it led me to creating my own business with my former partner, romantic partner, which was Um, a bad idea. (laughs) Was that business braver? 
It was, yeah. It was a combination of our names, but it was also a representative of the kind of place that, or kind of work that we wanted to do, which was like traveling, uh, philanthropic, but also providing like web development solutions to small businesses in the Dallas area. So, yeah. And, and we were able to do that. We actually started our, our company, Cash Positive. So that's always been a great accomplishment of my own. It's not something that people know about, but it's mm-hmm. something that I'm really proud of that I was able to do that. Now, you're also the co-founder and the executive director of a group called Black UX Austin. Tell me about that and like, what did you want to sort of get out of that group? Oh, my gosh. So going back to talking about leaving a company that I was working for that I faced some racial discrimination, uh, some a researcher that I was working with at the time, Carmen Brooms, she's also black as well. But she saw what I was going through and she was like, you need a release. You need... <laughs> You're way too talented to be treated this way. And mm-hmm. I want to provide an outlet for you to do what you do best. So she was like, two other researchers had started Black UX Austin before I even came along. And they just had never been able to get it off the ground. And so she told me that um, that she wanted to actually like take it all the way. She wanted to be like nationally recognized and be like a the one-stop shop for black people wanting to get into tech specifically Mm -hmm. in the austin area largely because their black people in tech are usually the onlys in the company that's the typical experience uh, where you're the only black person on your team in your organization your department and so you may experience things that if someone like you was around they would tell you Girl, girl, you're going through some shit like right now. They're, you know, treating you badly. It's gaslighting. So there wasn't that community or there before we came along. I don't think there was that kind of community in Austin specifically. And if you've been to Austin, you know, that it's very white. Um, mm-hmm. There's not that many black people here at all. <laughs> it's funny because my one of my best friends asked, I think he was asking someone else and he was like, I think one of his other friends had visited Austin. He was like, did you see any black people there? He was like, no. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I was. I told him, I was like, yeah, I'm the, I was just joking, but I was like, yeah, I'm the only one here. I'm right here. <laughs> You're talking to the black people of the black community in Austin. No, just kidding. But there's more than that, of course, but more than me. Yeah, we started Black UX Austin as a means for black people in tech to have a community, to have a safe space, to not feel like, you are being tone policed to just let your hair down and just be yourself. We started right before the pandemic started. And as we were reforming and making it kind of formalized, COVID started. And so we were like, oh, crap. So we had, by that point, we had only had one in-person event. And then we had to shift everything to be all virtual. Mm. And we got so good at it that other Black organizations that were in and out of tech we're like, how are you guys doing this? Because we got really good at it that people on LinkedIn, on maybe Instagram too, or whatever, were seeing what we were doing and were like wanting to support. And these are not just black people, but also white people, organizations where, you know, they've seen or witnessed black people being oppressed or mistreated in some way. And they just wanted to support. 
so they were at, you know, other black organizations or organizations, organizations in general were just asking us, how are you guys able to like grow and thrive online as you're doing? Part of it was that, you know, I know a lot about creating online community, mm-hmm. having been someone who who grew up needing community when I was growing up in rural Texas and mm-hmm. being the only a very sensitive black queer person in probably a 20, 30 mile radius. So I sought online community as much and as often as I could. And so I just learned from that. And I think that has warmed its way into or carried its way up to now, which is, you know, providing community or safe spaces for other black people. Mm. Now, you know, I feel like I'm mentioning all these asides, but you know, as I did my research, I saw that you're all, you're a poet and you're an author. Tell me about that, particularly about the impetus behind your latest book. Where did the, the drive come from for that? Oh my gosh. So, so first of all, I don't call myself a poet. I do write poetry, but I, I don't, I don't, yeah, it doesn't really, I don't, I don't feel that it fits me well. I call myself a writer, which is poetry is not the only writing that I, I will do. I want to do more memoirs and things like that. But actually, I didn't get my degree in design or web design or anything like that. I got my degree in creative writing. I had started to pursue creative writing and communication design, which is, if you're not familiar, communication design it encompasses, or at least at UNT, it encompasses uh, advertising and graphic design. So not web design, but it is design or the visual aspect of design. And so, and at the time, it was the closest thing I can get to a design degree. And... My minor is in computer education and cognitive systems, which translation, that means a couple of courses in installing Linux systems and some Adobe Photoshop courses. So, (laughs) yeah. So that was the closest I could get to having like a web design degree at that time, which was like 2000, between 2006 and 2010. So, but eventually I ran out of financial aid and I just stuck with the English creative writing aspect of my life. So growing up, I've always had a, I guess, an affinity for writing. I've always wanted to be a songwriter. And so Mm. I started writing songs at 12 just because I'd seen, you know, one of my favorite songwriters, Mariah Carey. Uh, You may laugh, but (laughs) she's a great songwriter. Obviously, we know a lot of her songs. I've always just written lyrical poems. Yeah. There's a floppy disk somewhere in my in my in my storage somewhere of like maybe 500 uh, lyrical poems I'd written when I was a kid. Not a floppy disk. You got to get it off the floppy, floppy disk, man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think you know what? I think at some point I did translate them to like to modern digi- digital at some point. So they're probably somewhere on a hard drive somewhere maybe. But yeah, I don't I don't know if I want to revisit those, to be honest. <laughs> They're probably terrible. But yeah, while I was at UNT, I got my English degree. And like I mentioned before, I'd started my UX design, product design de- career. Product design is kind of like a, a jealous mis- mistress when it comes to my other abilities. So my writing kind of had to be pushed to the side. But eventually I was like, I was approaching 30 and I was like, what can I do very quickly that, you know, I can be proud of, of my 20s for? And that was creating or writing a book. And so I, I self-published my first title, which is called The Remaining Trouble, 
and other battles. And then during the pandemic, I kind of remixed it and expanded it and republished it as So Much Trouble. And it's probably, in terms of writing, it's probably the project that I'm most proud of because it's the way I was able to kind of like produce it is how I envisioned it. Mm -hmm. And the quality is great in terms of design and writing. I was just very proud of it. I think many people should, all creatives should have something that they're just like absolutely proud of that they did. Um, I feel like that's very rare. Even if you do great work that other people admire, this level of like self-deprecation that designers have, or they don't fully love the work that they do, even if it's great. So mm-hmm. I think that everybody should have that that one project where they're just like, I absolutely love the shit out of this thing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the book is about, it's a book of poetry, a collection of poetry about, based on a time in my life where I had experienced relationship trauma. What I aimed to do with the book was to really just tell a story of a black queer kid who just wanted to, who didn't know how, but just really wanted to be, to be loved Mm -hmm. and to love. And I think I feel it's intense at times, but I love how it turned, how it came out. And anyone who's read it has, um, has told me the same. So now when I asked you earlier about what you wanted to discuss, you had (laughs) told me a few things that I kind of want to unpack a little bit. You said navigating a box-based world as an odd shape. You said unlearning harmful habits. And you said self-parenting. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about it. What's on your heart? Very, you know, <laughs> it's very woo-woo. And that's kind of where I'm at in my, my mid-30s right now. It's like, I feel like if you've grown up in, well, this is not the case for everybody, but for a few millennials, We've grown up in and seen some shit. We've grown up in a in a time where our parents told us one thing and the world is actually another. So um, there's a great deal of, at least when you're, I identify as black and queer or gay. And so those are two communities that have seen a lot of shit go down. So and who have experienced a lot of things, a lot of terrible things. We're talking like, if you're black, you know what we've been through. But in terms of like the queer community, AIDS. I grew up during the AIDS epidemic slash pandemic and the fallout, the religious fallout of that. People who are religious saying, you know, you're going to hell because, you know, you got AIDS or because you're gay or whatever. And just living in fear of identifying as gay. And, you know, over time, I've learned to unlearn all of the survival tactics that I've had to that I've had to learn growing up in rural Texas or growing up in, in Texas in general, you know, at age 35, I'm trying to just radically authentically be myself and love myself and encourage other people to do the same, not living under any guises, any false pretenses or anything like that. Just be yourself and love in that. I'm finding that it is, it is yielding a lot, a great, improvement in your health in your physical health and your mental health as well like mm-hmm. it's really important to just be yourself so that's where i'm at <laughs> and as far as uh, i think you mentioned self-parenting 
I think there is, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who is also a black queer person and he was like, we need somebody to, to speak on the unique experience of being a black queer cis male and the relationship with our mothers. My relationship with my mother has been very rocky. When I came out to her at 19, I wasn't under her roof. She probably maybe would have disowned me completely. So I'm glad that I had the wherewithal and the knowledge to just wait until I was out of her house to tell her who I actually am. After that, I think we were even more distant than we were already. Because I think in, you know, moms know. But once you say the words, then they actually know and there's no denying it. And so I think that created a bigger rift between us two. And so because of that, there were things that as a what we call in the community baby gay or, you know, somebody who's fresh to the gay community. There are some things that I experienced that I really could have benefited from having a parent there or some kind of mentor or something to kind of guide me through all this newness. And I didn't have that necessarily. So I had to learn how to self-parent. I had to learn how to look at the seven-year-old who was scared to be himself and say, there's nothing wrong with you. To, to just learn to love myself. And I think that plays out in every aspect of my life, even my professional career, where you know there are times where I deal with imposter syndrome or just being in spaces where I wasn't previously and now I all of a sudden am because of the great shift in thinking in, in the industry. I'm specifically talking about summer 2020, mm-hmm. where all of a sudden the gates that I wasn't allowed to like enter through, all of a sudden I am, but I have no understanding of how this new arena plays out or how to be or anything like that. So I deal with the imposter syndrome. And then you know what I do, the kid who just felt very ostracized, very on the outside of everything, on the outside of blackness, on the outside of queerness, just because I didn't have access to it, that plays out. And so what ends up happening is when that little kid comes out, the 35 year old comes bubbles up and says, you're okay. I got you. And that is essentially self-parenting, basically being your own advocate and standing up for yourself. Do you think you're still trying to find yourself? I think if you're living, you should be (laughs) because we're always changing. I identify as a seeker. I think it plays out in my my travel habit. I'm usually traveling by myself and I prefer it that way, largely because traveling is not vacation for me most of the time it's me thinking and writing in exotic places in dirty places or whatever what have you just being here there and everywhere just trying to learn about myself in different environments also i feel like growth happens when you're out of your comfort zone and so that's why i do that i want to learn as much as possible about myself and i think that I find it to be a common thing where people don't want to do that. Either it's from fear or, you know, they're afraid of what they might find or lack of self-confidence, which I totally understand. But I don't want to live in fear in my life. So I put on a brave face and I go into the unknown. So that's me. (laughs) Yeah. 
I feel like there was a lot of subtext in that unhale in that in that <laughs> inhale just then, but I I black person to black person, I felt mm-hmm. that. I felt mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you knew that you couldn't fail in your professional life, what would you want to do? What would you want to try to do? Oh my gosh. That's related to the question of like, if you weren't a designer, what would you be? And I would say like, if I weren't a designer, I would probably be a professional entertainer, like a singer or songwriter or something. Being a designer in the tech world, it can be very technical, very heady stuff. I find like, I want to, I want to flex my emotional muscle more. I try to do that as a system designer, you know, as designers, we're empathic anyway, or we have a lot of empathy. It's just a part of the job, but it's in a technical space most of the time. So you can't really go too deep with it and understand fully what your empathic abilities are. But with creative careers like music or writing or even acting, you get to explore that more and understand human humanity more or better. That's what I would be. But if I were to stay in this hypothetical situation, if I were to like stay within the, the tech industry, I think I'm close to what I dream of being, which is like this, um, man, this is going to sound very nerdy, but hey, we're all nerds here. Like kind of like a, a special agent designer where I, you know, in the realm of like design systems where I help teams adopt a design system where I basically do the dirty work for them of taking the existing product and essentially almost creating kind of a new version of that product with the design system and basically going bippity boppity boo over amount of uh, amount of time taking what was old and crusty and making it putting some shine on it making it golden saving the day in that way I'm almost there. I've almost (laughs) a part of it is like trying to get business to understand what design systems even is or are. And then also getting them to understand the pain point of a feature team adopting a design system and how hard and strenuous it is. So if there was someone like me or a team that I was a part of to kind of like go in and do that hard work for them and essentially save the day get some happy smiles in there, make the business feel like their employees are happy just because somebody came in and and helped them out, then that's what I would love to do. I'm a person who's like, I don't care about promotion. I don't care about money. It's more about how I make people feel. I want to help people. And if I can help people with their jobs, their day-to-day, like that, that makes me feel good. That makes me feel like my, my job is rewarding. So... Yeah, that's me. (laughs) What career advice would you give to somebody like they're listening to you talk, they're listening to your story, and they see that you've had this very, I think, nonlinear career path is probably a good way to describe it. Oh, yeah. What, What career advice would you give to someone who is like walking that same sort of path? There was advice that I had gotten from design evangelist Stephen Anderson, when I was, I guess, fresh out of college and at the height of being really unhappy with my first job out of college, he gave the advice of like, have fun with your career. And I'm going to expound on that and say, don't just get a job, like 
get a craft, something that you can believe in, something that makes you happy and makes you joyful. It makes you want to wake up in the morning and get to it, jump into it. I'm so glad that that design systems be, has become a thing because when I wake up in the morning, I'm really excited to to just jump in with design system stuff. I really geek out on it to the point where people don't understand what the heck I'm talking about because I'm speaking a different language. I'm speaking a systems language and they're usually speaking a product language. But yeah, that's what my advice would be is like have fun with your career. I think something that we didn't talk about really was at a certain point I was a career contractor. So I was kind of like a design handyman. And that meant like I was taking on jobs three months or six months at a time in Austin, Dallas, Seattle, or, you know, if I wasn't anchored to a city, I was traveling full time around the country doing things. At times it, you know, I was working from Costa Rica while I was backpacking and things like that. So, yeah, I've always wanted to just not do things the typical way. And it it has always made it fun. My favorite thing is to tell people things like that and to see their faces like, really? What? Just shock people. <laughs> so have fun with your career. To that end, where do you see yourself in the next five years? I'm going to cl- ask a clarifying question. Do you mean professionally or do you mean in, in my personal life? I mean, any way that you wish to take it. <laughs> I was hoping you would say one or the other because that would make it easier. But, you know, I'm in my mid 30s. And I'm thinking a lot about my personal life. I've given a lot of attention to my professional life up to this point. And like I mentioned before, product design or my design career has been like a jealous mistress of anything else that I try to focus on. So I had the great ability during my seven-month road trip last year to kind of do both. I think about where I want to go from here or from that point and also foster my, my design career. And I see myself retiring from design. I haven't really told anybody that, but I I don't think it's feasible. (laughs) I would love to. Why don't you think it's feasible? I think because I'm looking at my finances. (laughs) I'm thinking very realistically. I'm looking at my my finances and I'm thinking like, okay, you want to do this and this and this and this and this and this. How are you going to pay for that? Oh, right. You have to have a job, Trevor. Come on, get real. So <laughs> I would love to get to a point where design is not my only main means of income. I'll say it that way, where it's not my only means of income. Maybe I'm still doing design systems in some way, but it's not the only thing that I'm doing. I'm also giving, I'm, I'm finding balance. That's where I want to be in five years, is having maintaining a, a balance where I'm loving life still. I'm loving doing design systems or helping people with design systems, but I'm also, I'm also creating a family. I feel like with my career, I haven't fully been able to do that. I've been very much a career, career girl. So (laughs) yeah. So to be able to like, you know, kind of invest more in, like I mentioned before, the emotional side of myself um, and have family and people, I just, I guess, just foster more relationships. It's kind of a long-winded answer, but that's where I'm at. <laughs> I'm kind of thinking on the spot a little bit, but that's where I want to see myself in five years is feeling balanced, full of joy, and loving what I do in terms of work. And I'm almost there. I feel like I'm almost there. 
and it feels really good to be almost there. Whereas before it felt like it was a long time away. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work? Where can they find Mm -hmm. that online? Yeah. So you can find out more about my writing and my design at trevorwagner.com. My name is spelled a little weird, so uh, I have some extra letters in there, so I'll spell it for you. It's T-R-E-A-V-O-R-W-A-G-O-N-E-R.com. And you can go to my design page and there's, you won't have access to my portfolio, but you'll see all the other nerdy things that I write about there as well. Um, You can also follow me on Twitter at Trevor Wagner. That's it. Sounds good. Well, Trevor Wagner, I want to thank you (laughs) so much for coming on the show. I get the sense that you are someone that is at a crossroads right now. Mm -hmm. Usually like when I give these postscripts, when I'm like, talking to the guest, I'm like, you know, saying that, you know, you're doing great work, which is not to say that you're not doing great work, but I really feel this sense of tension within Mm -hmm. you. Like you're at a a crossroads right now. I would be interested to see if in the next five years you fulfilled that balance that you're seeking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been seeking for, you know, living that persona for years and a seeker you eventually find and so that's probably part of the the tension is the realization i would say as a seeker is that you realize what you're looking for you've already had and Hmm. so now that i've kind of realized that i've always had it now i i get to actually discover it more what i already have and enjoy it that's where i'm at Hmm. how profound (laughs) (laughs) i am a writer (laughs) (laughs) trevor wagner thank you so much for coming on the show man i appreciate it thank you for having me i appreciate it big big thanks to trevor wagner and of course thanks to you for listening you can find out more about trevor and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com revision path is brought to you by lunch a multidisciplinary creative studio in atlanta georgia This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are provided by Brevity and Wit. This episode of Revision Path is also brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400-plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? You know, we'd love to hear from you, so please contact us on social media. You can hit us up on Twitter. You can hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or on Spotify. The more people you tell about the show, the bigger we become and the further we can extend our reach to talk to Black designers, developers, artists, and other digital creatives from all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.